Hey everybody, you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. I am Doug Birch, so glad you could listen. So there's all kinds of Christian leadership books out there. I mean, all kinds of Christian leadership books. And they have these principles about what makes a good Christian leader and all these wonderful seminars. But many of these books and seminars lead out one of the most crucial elements of being a good Christian leader. And that's this fact, that good Christian leaders don't minister alone. They minister in pairs. We'll talk about that on today's show. glad you could join me for another edition of the Fairly Spiritual Show. On today's show, we're going to talk about ministering and one of the most uh, crucial elements needed in effective ministry, and it's often overlooked. And, and if you've been listening to the show, we've started off or restarted the Fairly Spiritual Show, focusing on, uh, well, I just wrote a book, so I wanted you to hear about what's on my heart uh, the book's all about community. It's called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. And uh, you can get it at Amazon.com and through my website, fairlyspiritual.org. There are so many places you can avoid it, really. I mean, there's just so many ways to avoid it. There's an audible version and such. But we've been going through uh, just how individualistic we are as a culture and how the Bible does not approach our salvation, uh, discipleship, basically anything from an individualistic perspective, that it really is about community. And today I want to talk about the issue of uh, ministry and ministry in the form of community. Uh, there are so many leadership books, uh, tons of leadership books, uh, Christian leadership books, Christian leadership conferences. And this is one of those areas that kind of drives me crazy because uh, you'll, you'll read these books and you'll listen to people speak about Christian leadership and they're almost just adamant. Um, if you want to be a good Christian leader, you need to implement good Christian leadership principles, right? Just It's just this, like they've read the scripture and they've said, clearly, you're not going to be a good Christian leader. And they'll say things like, you know, the church is only as strong as their leader. And, you know, if we're going to grow uh, good churches and strong churches, we need to have strong leaders. And it all sounds really good, right? And I guess we could believe that or agree with that in some principle. But one of the things you notice, almost every one of these books leaves out one of the main principles of leadership you find in the New Testament. Uh, you want to know what it is? Drum roll, please. Well, I don't have a drum. Uh, but, but one of the main principles, one of the main things you see in leadership, one of the most practical things that you see over and over again in the New Testament when it comes to leadership and ministry is that they did not minister alone that leaders in the New Testament ministered in pairs. 
in at least pairs and often in more than that, that there wasn't this idea of one minister going off by himself or herself and just ministering alone. That you see from the model of how Jesus ministered, how the disciples ministered, how the Apostle Paul ministered, every model is a model of ministry where they went out in groups or in pairs. And yet, when you read these books on ministry and on leadership development, uh, they don't talk about the importance of ministering in pairs. Sometimes they'll say, you know, you need to have a team or you need to develop people, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible shows that ministry is done in community. You see that first with Jesus. And one of the ways we make Jesus so individualistic, we love to make put Jesus through our grid, is Jesus called 12 disciples to him. And we'll say, well, why did Jesus call 12 disciples? He must have done that. What For what purpose? Uh, you know, he wanted to raise up uh, people who did what he did, right? So he needs to train people to be just like him. So that's one of the ways we talk about the disciples. But I believe the reason Jesus ministered with 12 disciples is because if he had not ministered with disciples, he would have been sinning. It is sin to minister alone. Let me say that again. It is sin to go out on your own and minister alone. Jesus is the sinless son of God, right? Everything he did on earth is sinless. And to minister in the sinless, perfect way, he could not minister alone. He was supposed to minister in community. So for him just to go out and do things on his own, have his own ministry and just on his own, not share anything with anyone else, he would not have been reflecting the heart of God for humanity because God created humans to work, live, abide, and minister in community. And we know that because Jesus shared the ministry of the kingdom with his disciples. We see uh, in a couple scriptures, and again, you'll find this in the book, and I'm just not going to reference a lot of the scriptures in this podcast. You see that uh, he sends out, there's one part where he sends out the 12 disciples to go before him. He prays for the disciples and he gives them authority. And he gives them authority not just to introduce him, but to do the ministry of the kingdom. And this is so important to understand. So Jesus comes to the disciples and he prays for them and he says, I want you to go before me, go into the cities where I'm going to go into those cities. And you get to announce that I'm coming, but you get to pray for people and you get to cast out demons and you get to heal the sick in my name. And we know these disciples had such power and such authority that uh, later on the disciples notice that there's a man who's healing people and casting out, or trying to cast out demons in Jesus's name. And they're like, we don't even know who this guy is. Well, Jesus had given the disciples permission to introduce the community to Jesus before Jesus was even in that community. Think about this. Now, if someone didn't know who you were, they had no idea who you were, would you let someone else go to that town and do ministry on your behalf? in your name, in the name of Doug. Would I allow someone to go into a town and say, this is Doug's ministry, and this is what Doug does, and begin to minister in my authority? Jesus, the perfect Son of God, establishing the kingdom of God on earth, allows the disciples to go before him into these cities and to preach the gospel, to do great signs and wonders in his name before he even enters the town. Jesus shared ministry from the beginning. We see that also there's the 12 and then there's the 72 that are sent out as well. Jesus did ministry. He shared ministry with others. There's such a powerful image of shared ministry, and I go into this in much more detail in the book, but I just, I'm just going to give you this big, big overview picture and again, how we just limit the issue of shared ministry. 
But here's another powerful image when it comes to ministry and when it comes to shared ministry and the importance of ministry is not to be done alone. It's not to be done alone. One of the areas that I want to look at is the issue of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we love to present the story of the Apostle Paul as the story of this amazing individual, right? There's this amazing individual who was persecuting the Christian church, and then after he persecutes the Christian church, what happens? Uh, he has this encounter with God at the Damascus Road, and his eyes are blinded, and you know these events happen, and people are involved in, in Paul's life, and we tell the stories of the people who are involved in his life, but, but we have this story that Paul basically, then, then he spends some time preparing for ministry, and then after he prepares for ministry, he goes on his first missionary journey, and then after he goes on his first missionary journey, he goes on a next missionary journey, and he writes some letters, and he does these amazing things, and we really talk about Paul as this amazing Christian individual that we all should follow. But one of the things I want to focus on is that Paul's ministry is not a story of an individual but it's a story of a community, or it's a story of a ministry pairing. Paul does not have a ministry without Barnabas. Barnabas introduces Paul into the ministry, and if Barnabas hadn't played a central role in Paul's life, Paul would not have ministered the gospel. And, and when you look at you know, Barnabas's life, Barnabas is introduced to us in a very different way than Paul. Barnabas's name, he's called Son of Encouragement, and we're introduced to him, and this is on page 159 of the book. Uh, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means Son of Encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So uh, we, we are introduced to him in Acts that Barnabas sells his possessions or sells some land and he lays the money from the, the land at the apostles' feet for them to be able to distribute to those who are poor. And it's important to know what's going on in the Acts Church at this time. Uh, the reason some people were selling land uh, is because those who became Christians, many were disowned by their families. And the people who were disowned by their families did not have access to land, to money, to the ability to support themselves. And those are people who were not the eldest male in the family. The eldest male in the family owned the land, owned the property. They had control in the family. So people who were not the eldest male, they lost everything when they came to Christ. So there were a lot of poor people in the New Testament church. And it wasn't just that Christianity was attractive to poor people. It was that when people became Christians, they became poor. How's that for a gospel? Come to Christ and you'll become poor. That doesn't really grow churches, does it? But it actually grew the New Testament church. People came to Christ, and the fruit of coming to Christ was they were disowned. They weren't allowed to have the family property. They were kicked out of their homes. They were beaten. They weren't allowed to, to uh, have the family occupation. And so in the New Testament church, you have a, a series of family members who are poor because they've been disowned by their families. Now, there are other family members, or there are other Christians who have some money, who are the Christians who have money? Well, those are the Christians who are the eldest. That means the eldest son, the Christians who have some money and have some land because they have control over that land. So it's implied here that Barnabas was probably the eldest son. He had control over that land. You can only sell land that you have control over. So think about these Christian environments. Everyone has given their life to Christ, and you're sitting in a service, and the person next to you has given their life to Christ, and they've lost everything. 
They've been beaten. Maybe if they're a slave, they were beaten by their master. If they're a wife, they were beaten by their husband or divorced. Or if they're a son, they're disowned by their father. They're disowned. They're not given any inheritance. They're poor. They're destitute. Their lives are in a place of poverty and destitution, and they're dependent upon the church to take care of them. And then you're sitting next to them, and you're the eldest male, and you have property, and you have money, and you have resources. What do you do? You both just sing the song, I surrender all, I surrender all. Or do you truly engage the fact that this is my new family, and I'm going to invest in my new family? Well, this is what was happening when people were selling their possessions and laying them at the feet of the apostles. This is what Barnabas does. He's saying, you know what? I believe in this movement. I believe in this Jesus, so I'm going to give up my inheritance, and I'm going to throw these possessions at the apostles' feet, and I'm going to trust that they're going to distribute it to the rest of the body. It's basically saying, I'm a part of this family, which is pretty powerful too, because Barnabas is a Levite, and the Levites were originally not supposed to have land. They were supposed to just basically be taken care of by the rest of the tribes of Israel. So here we have this story of Barnabas, son of encouragement, encouraging the New Testament church, selling his possessions to help the poor amongst them. And then we have the story of Paul, and Paul is on the other side. Paul, who's first called Saul, is a good Pharisee who believes that Christianity is actually a, an, an attack, or these followers of Christ are attacking the principles, principles of Judaism. And so he goes after the church, and he's persecuting the church, and he's actually there to martyr or have uh, Stephen stoned to murder Stephen. He causes such a great persecution in the church that the Christian church flees Jerusalem through the surrounding areas because of Paul's persecution. That's how he's introduced to the narrative. So God gets a hold of Paul, and on the Damascus Road, there's this conversion experience, and Paul realizes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he becomes a Christian or a Christ follower. But the story doesn't end there. There needs to be a community for the story to go forward. It's not just the story of Paul, and it's not just the story of Barnabas. It's the story of the Spirit of God working through both of them. You need the Spirit of God working through both of them in order for the kingdom of God to advance. And that's what's so powerful about this story. And I, and I think we, we need to tell it again, and we need to tell it again, and we need to tell it again. Because I don't think we really understand that there's no such thing as a self-made Christian or just the Christian who gets a vision from God and they go off on their own. And despite all the obstacles, they pursue God. And by faith, they do what God has called them to do. Even when we look at someone like Paul, his ministry is not just his ministry. And it's, just, it's not even just God's ministry in him. It's a ministry that's rooted in the help of the church. And it really is started by the faithfulness of a man named Barnabas. So we see here that Paul reaches this conversion, and then Scripture brings us to this point where after Paul had scattered the church from persecuting the church, there's revival that occurs with the persecuted church. And I'm going to read something here from page 162. The Scripture says that many followers of Christ were scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch because of the persecution that surrounded the death of Stephen. Before his conversion, Paul oversaw and approved of Stephen's murder. When individuals came uh, to Christ in Antioch, so people came to Christ in Antioch, you know why they were in Antioch? Because 
Paul had scattered them there. So Christians had been persecuted in Jerusalem. They went to Antioch. Now revival is occurring in Antioch. And the Jerusalem council is now sending Barnabas. So this is what the scripture says. The Jerusalem council sent Barnabas to Antioch to help lead the people in their faith. Now here's the deal. The Jerusalem council sent Barnabas to help the Christians in Antioch. Barnabas could have just gone on his own. Barnabas could have just said, you know, I got the skills, I got the talents, I got the resources, I'll do it on my own. But Barnabas, led by the Holy Spirit, didn't do that. The scripture says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, for Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And then it says, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. This is something sometimes we just quickly read over, but it's incredibly crucial. Paul was stuck in Tarsus. Sometimes people say, you know, Paul was just spending time training to get ready in Tarsus. I don't believe that Paul was training in Tarsus. Paul was stuck in Tarsus. God had this radical experience where he confronted Paul on the Damascus Road. He he knows he's supposed to pursue Christ. He knows he's supposed to be a minister of the gospel, but he has a problem. He has a problem that his history is persecuting the church and no one trusts him. The Jerusalem council doesn't trust him. Uh, Those he persecuted doesn't trust him, so he's stuck in Tarsus. He has an encounter with Jesus. He has a dream. He has a passion. He has a vision. But unless Barnabas comes and helps him out, he's stuck with a dream and a vision and a passion, but the inability to do anything about it. The relevance for this today is so strongly. Right now, there are people who have visions and dreams and passions, and God has been moving on their heart, but they cannot move forward unless you partner with them. They cannot move forward unless I partner with them, unless we partner together. It's not a self-made man or a self-made woman. They are waiting for someone to help them. Even for Paul, with this radical Damascus experience where he meets the resurrected presence of Jesus Christ, it is not enough to help him move forward in ministry. He needs Barnabas because the scripture says that Barnabas goes and he finds Paul. And we find in scripture that Barnabas does two things. Barnabas takes Paul to the Jerusalem council and the Jerusalem council, the scripture says, was afraid to meet with Paul. They didn't believe his conversion. They were afraid of him but they weren't afraid of Barnabas. They trusted Barnabas. Barnabas had given, you know, basically his future by selling his property and given his life to the ministry. So Barnabas, with his arm around Paul, brings him to the Jerusalem council and says, he's with me. We're together. You trust me, don't you? Well, you can trust him. And so the Jerusalem council is like, okay, we trust you, Barnabas. You can take Paul. And so then what do they do? They go to Antioch. And can you imagine entering that room? Paul entered the room of a church that he had persecuted. He entered a room of people where he had martyred their family members. Martyred their family members. And he walks in the room and you could see probably their fists just clenched. You could see their faces just kind of that fear over their faces. They had had to leave everything. You don't, by the way, we move from different places in our land. You know, we're used to that. They had gone from Jerusalem to Antioch. They had fled in terror of being murdered, of their children, of their families being torn apart. And here comes Paul walking into the room and Barnabas with his arm around Paul saying, it's okay, it's okay. Christ got a hold of this one. He's one of us. And so Paul 
is introduced to the Antioch church, and they spend some time there so they can trust him and they can trust Christ in him. And then from that, they go on their first missionary journey. And if you look in most uh, scriptures or you look at most Bibles, they'll say Paul's first missionary journey. I don't believe that first missionary journey should be called Paul's first missionary journey. That first missionary journey is Barnabas's first missionary journey where he introduces the world to Paul because the places they go are all the places where Christians fled because they had been persecuted by the church and people like Saul. So every city they go into, can you imagine that for, okay, we're going to go in and you know the drill. People are going to hate you. People are going to hate you. And we're going to go through this process of reconciliation. We're going to go through this process of forgiveness. Why did Paul talk about the ministry of reconciliation? Because he had to live it out. And Barnabas would introduce them. Hey, here's my friend. Here's our brother in Christ. There's no Paul ministry without Barnabas. They ministered together. Together. Now, even we see later in Scripture that that conflict happened, right? There's between them. In fact, you even see where Paul gets upset because Barnabas is so gracious with someone who left one of their ministry journeys that Paul doesn't want to give him a second chance, and Barnabas does. And so they split ways. The Scripture says they, they split ways. But even when they split ways, both of the men take another person with them. They go out and they minister in pairs because they can't even imagine ministering alone. We can't imagine ministering with other people. They minister as teams. I don't know how many pastors I've met who minister alone. And they might minister mega churches, large churches, but they minister alone. They don't share ministry. Even pastors who use terms like I minister as a team, they're, they're the lead and they, they, they are doing all the work or there's this huge hierarchy and there's very little trust and, and truly shared ministry. But the scripture is full of example after example of ministering in pairs. He sends them out. Jesus sends out the 12 in pairs to minister. He sends out the 72 in pairs to minister of Paul and Barnabas in pairs. You see that again and again. What a scriptural principle. And yet every leadership, almost every leadership book you read, they don't say, hey, you know, one of the most important leadership principles, you should minister in pairs. No, that's not that important. Now am I saying you have to always minister in pairs to to be effective? No, but it's pretty crucial, isn't it? Now, I tell you all this because I want to tell you a part of my life is I pastor a church, uh, you know, a mega church of around 100 people. And I wouldn't be ministering today if it wasn't the person I minister with. I minister, I co-pastor our church with Pastor Dan Barons. I co-pastor the church. And a lot of people ask what that is and how we do that. And I don't really know how to explain it, except for we share ministry together. We co-pastor the church. Uh, when, when, when I started the church and we, we, when I was first at it, I knew I didn't want to just hire someone to do youth or do children's ministry. I wanted to find someone where I could do shared ministry together, where we would share the burden of ministry. I didn't want to minister alone. I, I, I didn't want it to rise and fall on me. I didn't, I didn't want it to be that hierarchy. I truly wanted someone who was fully invested, and I am fully invested. And so it took a long time. And I'll tell you the story. It was kind of neat. Uh, I remember uh, Dan started uh, dating 
a young woman in our church, and that young woman is like a sister to me and my family. And so he started dating her. And to be honest, I wasn't thinking of someone in the ministry. I was just thinking, you better not be a jerk because you're dating someone who's like a sister in our family. And I was more like that, you know, just the protective. Who is this guy? And is he good enough for this young woman? Uh, But I got to know Dan and I got to know his heart. And uh, he was someone where God was working on his heart. And there were a few things about Dan I really liked. One of the things I really liked is just his genuine faith and his genuine honesty, and his genuine love of God. The other thing I loved about him is he was not like me. He was very different. I don't want another one of me. There's enough of me out there. It was so nice to see someone else who was very different in how he did things, how he talked, how he organized his life. Different. I like that. But I got to tell you, I really wasn't even thinking about, oh, I'm going to minister, you know, the rest of my life with this person. I I wasn't even thinking that way. I wasn't thinking we're going to co-pastor a church someday. I was just thinking, hey, this is a nice guy. I'd like to get to know him a little better. Well, uh, I uh, had an event in our church. Uh, The Seattle Seahawks used to be a terrible team. They were just awful. If you grew up in Seattle, Seattle Seahawks were awful. I would start every year with this. I'd say, you know what the definition of false hope is? The definition of false hope is being, and I'd ask people to you know, say what that is, and they'd say, you know, definition of false hope is believing in false idols, and they'd give all spiritual reasons, and I'd say, no, the definition of false hope is being a Seattle Seahawks fan. I just say that because that's how bad we were, and I love the Seahawks, but it was my way of coping. Well, one year when we were not that good, I bet the church, and I said, you know, there's no way the Seahawks are going to make the playoffs. There's just no way. There's absolutely no way. And this is how I work. I just bet against what I want. I want them to make the playoffs, but there's no way. So I said, there's no way they'll make the playoffs. In fact, I'm confident if they make the playoffs, I will walk 25 miles in one day. Now, I don't work out. I don't walk 25 miles in any day. And I just thought it was a sure bet. There's just no way this was going to happen. And so I made that bet, said, there's just no way they're not going to make it. That year, it was one of those years where they had a record like they won nine games, lost seven, and they made it to the playoffs. And so I had to walk 25 miles in one day. And I just picked like a one-mile loop at the park, and I just went around 25 times. Well, on that day, different people from the church came and walked around with me, some to ridicule me, some to pray with me. And, you know, they'd walk a couple miles, and they'd stop, and it was great. But on that day, uh, Dan Barons walked with me. And uh, Dan started walking with me one mile. And Dan started walking with me two miles. And then Dan started walking with me three miles. And he kept walking and walking and walking. And by the 10th mile, I started thinking, why is this man walking with me? And uh, now I knew Dan was going to be a teacher or going into teaching. And my dad was a teacher. He taught for 30 plus years. And I know you have to feel called to teach. I love teaching. I love teachers. I love the public schools. And I asked Dan, I go, what do you feel on a scale of one to 10, you're calling to be a teacher? And Dan said something like, I don't know, like a five or a six. And I knew when he said five or six, then I could go after him because if it was like eight or nine, I got to leave him alone. But five or six, you know, he's fair game. And So I began to pursue him with ministry, and I then began to ask him, you know, hey, well, maybe you could like work with the church a little bit. This is not like an associate role, or this was just, hey, maybe you could, you know, work in the church a little bit for a few months. And and that went from maybe you could be an associate to then eventually it became, let's co-pastor this church together. And now Dan and I faithfully co-pastor the church together. We don't have anything written down about what he's supposed to do or I'm supposed to do. 
And we do things based on our giftings. And I do certain things based on my strengths, and he does certain things based on his strengths. And we do these things based on a relationship that we love each other. But I have to tell you, if I wasn't pastoring with him now, I, I, I wouldn't be ministering today. I couldn't do it. I think the way we've structured the church and the way we've structured ministry is, is really detrimental to long-term ministry. The Bible is clear. Look at Paul was not supposed to minister alone. Barnabas was not supposed to minister alone. Jesus was not supposed to minister alone. He sent out the 12 not to minister alone. He sent out the 72 not to minister alone. And yet we raise up pastor after pastor after pastor to minister alone. And the majority of churches, like 95% of churches are 200 people or less. And most of those are one pastor leading it. And it's not the same of maybe even having a staff member or someone you're supervising. I'm talking about, do you have someone that you can fully minister with? And it's not just about pastors. It's about doing ministry with someone where you truly are sharing that ministry, someone who can carry the burden with you, not just the burden of doing stuff, but carry the burden of the pain and the hurt and the tears. You know, we put someone in the nursery and they fall apart because it's all on them. Or we take a youth pastor and we just run them into the ground, that youth pastor, where we put this huge weight on them, and this load on them, and, and we run them into the ground. The Bible has ministry in pairs and in teams. I know there's financial considerations, and maybe that's one of the reasons we don't do it. We're not meant to minister alone. We're meant to minister in community. I, I will minister in settings where I'll leave a room and I'll be able to look over at Dan and say, man, what was going on there? Was that me? Was that you? What's happening? And he can give me perspective. I, I, I get nervous in environments. I get overwhelmed. I get fearful. And before I enter a room, I can say, Dan, I'm feeling nervous. I'm, I'm feeling upset. I'm feeling insecure. And I can just say that to him. And he can say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It'll be all right. I have someone I can truly minister with. And he's someone he can, he can have someone he can truly minister with. We've got to find a way to reclaim what ministry is about. Ministry is not just men making a name for themselves. It's about the kingdom of God being advanced through the leading of the Holy Spirit through communities. It's not individuals, it's communities. It's pairs of leaders going out. It's Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Timothy. Mary and Martha, I mean, it's, 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 it's not just one person. It's groups and couples and names of people in community. It's not superheroes and superstars. I'd like you to think about this. Are you trying to build a ministry alone? Are you trying to isolate and do it all on your own? How do you see ministry? Maybe God has a more biblical way for you to minister the kingdom of God. Okay, I hope that's okay for you. If you want to find out, there's much more about this in the book. I'd love for you to pick it up. It's The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. That's The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. I was looking at chapter 13 today. You can get it on my website at fairlyspiritual.org. That's fairlyspiritual.org. 
www.amazon.org. You can buy it from me and I'll give you a signed copy or you can go to amazon.com. There's also an Audible version. You can get it for free if you've never done Audible before and you sign up for a new membership. If you've never done Audible before, you can download it for free. So that's a deal as well. Make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. Uh, This theme song is done by my brother, Dan Bursch. You can get his songs on iTunes. I'll see you next time. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken by your word, your Holy Spirit's leading me, you are my only one, you're the only one worth living for, so I'm dreams with you